It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Online. 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 You're going online with Bill Alexander. Online with Bill Alexander is a live caller interactive talk show. Whatever's on your mind, heavy, light, or otherwise, give Bill a ring at 724-444-7444. ID 1832. Now, sit back and strap in for another edition of Online with Bill Alexander. friends from the Historical Society, Joe Lofsted, Chris Bucklew, and the gentleman sitting to my right, and Andrew, I'm going to apologize right now that I'm going to butcher it, but I will do my my best. Andrew Portwanker. Portwancher. Launcher. I yeah. knew I was going to mess that up. <laughs> but Andrew just wrote a book that is dealing with um, Uniontown history, a murder case that happened here in the 1800s, and the book itself is called The Devil Himself. And it is about the uh, not Duke trials that happened and goes back to the history of Uniontown and what was going on in the time period and everything else. My first question is, why? Why did this case interest you enough to write a book about it? Yeah, well, um, though I was on the hunt for... uh a trial to write a book about. Um, I was interested in doing some kind of book on a trial. I think trials lend themselves to great storytelling, um, you know, and there's there's the story that the prosecution's trying to tell about the events that precipitated a trial. There's the story, a very different story that the defense is trying to tell. And then there's this meta-narrative of the trial itself with the drama of the cross-examination and the climactic moment of the verdict. And so I think trials lend themselves to good storytelling. And you can see that from something like Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice through Dickens's novels to, you know, later films like A Few Good Men. Um, and so I think they provide really good fodder um, for narrative. And so um, I was on the hunt, and I found uh, the trial transcripts of the two trials that I write about in this book. Um, the You know, in the 19th century, Americans, uh, much like Americans today, were fascinated by trials, um, so much so that the transcripts of especially interesting proceedings that garnered a lot of press coverage were bound and sold, um, and, and people would hawk them on the street for 25 or 50 cents. Um, and so I actually found a couple of the booklets that had the trial transcripts from these cases uh, in the catalog of a law library. And as I was reading through these trial transcripts, it was this incredible story of, um, of unrequited love, of murder, of revenge, of political intrigue. Um, it was a story that was so gripping in its details and so revealing of its historical moment um, that, uh, you know, it immediately struck me that if it's at all possible someone has already written a book about this, I had no doubt that this was a story that, that I wanted to tell. And so I got in touch with the local historical society a few years ago, um, and they told me, well, you know, people know about this story as local folklore, but no one's actually done a proper historical treatment of it. Um, and so I jumped at the opportunity to be the first person to, to tell this story. And I was—I got a copy of the book, and I was able to read it. And I was just being able to take me back to Uniontown in that time frame. Now, 
The, steep, the, the, the city's still laid out the same way. The roads are laid the same way. Unfortunately, buildings aren't there. But there are some of the places from the Nut Mansion. You still have the building that would have been classified as the post office at the time where they found, where Duke was shot, mm-hmm. and the cemetery and everything else. So you're able to draw a connection between today and back then, which is really nice to be able to do it. And the thing is, is this story is about a gentleman who had a fascination or an obsession with a young lady by the name of Lizzie Nutt. And basically he was pursuing her, engaged to her, and then he didn't like what he believed she was doing on the side. Which, let's just say, she wasn't as innocent as we thought she was, or was she, and was he portraying it as being something different? Right, right. So, you know, Nicholas Dukes, who was this... uh up-and-coming politician in Uniontown, um, you know, he writes this scandalous letter to his fiance's um, father, who was a revered Civil War hero and a high-ranking official at the state treasury, um, basically accusing her of having had, ex, you know, premarital relations with other men, which, you know, in Victorian times in the 1880s, this is um, about as, as an audacious an accusation you can make of a young woman. Um, and so... Uh, whether, whether it was true or not, whether um, Nicholas Dukes was using these allegations and they were spurious and he was using them as a pretext to break off his engagement, or whether there was some truth to it um, and he didn't want to marry what at the time would have been considered an impure woman, uh, is, is one of the mysteries of this book that we may never know the answers to. Um, but from the perspective of Lizzie's father, it didn't really matter because he, Dukes, uh, had claimed in the letter that he he had heard rumors that Lizzie was promiscuous and decided to um, solicit her as a test to see if she was pure or not. And he says in the letter that she she succumbed to his test. And so uh, either Dukes is telling the truth and he actually did try to seduce her, which would be a violation of this honor code, or he's lying and he's selling the reputation of a pure woman. So in either event, from the perspective of Lizzie's father, Captain Nutt, um, Dukes had violated the code of honor, um, and uh, Nutt expected his corpse as reparation for Dukes's sins against his family. And it, it becomes it becomes an interesting story because when you read it, it seems like Duke honestly sounded like he wanted to take down the Nutt family by doing this because he had this scandalous uh, accusation about Lizzie. And just making, not saying that dad was a bad father, mm-hmm. but this is what your daughter's doing on the side. And again, it was Captain Nutt who felt that he had to stand up for his daughter and had to confront this accusation full force. Now, what I thought was interesting is these letters were released to what we would classify the, the media at the time, the right. newspapers. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I could never imagine that happening today. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's just that they would release these letters, and they were scandalous in nature of the way they were written. Right, right. These letters, especially by the standards of Victorian times, um, are considered extremely graphic. And so Dukes writes uh, when he says um, he's describing this erotic test that he subjected yes. Lizzie to, and he and he writes to Captain Nutt um, that uh, what, you know the quote is, "What was my horror and heartsickness when I found the signs of her virginity wanting?" Um, and so by the standards of the day, um, you know this is really. Uh, uh, scandalous language and um, and so you know what was really interesting to me about this story is that when Captain Nutt confronts Nicholas Dukes uh, and and they have this fight to the death and Dukes uh, ends up killing Captain Nutt that actually the press said that even worse than the murder of Captain Nutt was the writing of these letters. Right. That's how egregious mm-hmm. this this sort of violation of the honor code was. Um, that it was worse to have written this kind of language about a girl to her father than it was to have actually extinguished the life of the father. Yeah. One of the things that surprised me in the book is how fast mail traveled from Uniontown to Harrisburg. That to me was amazing. <laughs> sure, sure. And this is, this is an era where, you know, the 
telegraph is, is the is the main mode of communication. Right. And so you also have news being telegraphed back and forth between Uniontown and Harrisburg and Pittsburgh. And so people are learning about these events very quickly. And um, and the other thing too is when the trial happened, when the when the when the murder happened, and then the trial happened, this became a national story. Out of Uniontown, Pennsylvania, which today we think of Uniontown as a small rural city in a, in a rural county. But back then, it was a big deal because this went all over the country. Yes. Uh, it, it literally overnight became a national story. Um, and so you see newspapers all over the country from New England to California, major cities, small rural papers, um, and every region of the country are, are writing about this. And I think partly because the idea of these two state officials, a state representative um, in the General Assembly and a high-ranking Treasury official fighting to the death over the honor of one of their daughters um, was such a scandalous story in itself uh, that I think it captivated the national imagination. But the story also spoke to this broader code of honor that people felt was under siege. Um, you know, one of the things I hope people take from this book is, is you know, not just a, a sense of, of the place, Uniontown, but a sense of the place in this historical moment of rapid change. Right. America is transitioning from this rural agrarian society to an urban industrial one, and people feel like traditional values are under siege. And so this question of whether this code of honor that people revere can endure in a modern America um, is very much a live question. And so I think that this trial um, spoke to this deeper anxiety that people felt. And so we see this kind of story get press coverage, not only all over the country, but eventually uh, I was able to find instances on four different continents of newspapers covering this story. There was one that jumped out to me that the Albuquerque Journal had it in there, and I have family there, so I'm going that's kind of amazing that it was yeah. able to get that far yeah. in that short of time. Now, when you did the book and you said you, you read um, law, law journals that had the trial in it, where does the Historical Society of Fayette County come into play to flesh out the rest of the story? Right, right. So I so I had, I had found the... Uh, these, these booklets where the trial transcripts were first printed um, and um, the ones that had been sold commercially uh, and found them in a law library. And then uh, when I reached out to the Historical Society, um, which is a really vibrant uh, community of people who are really excited about, about Fayette County history, um, you know, one, I was excited to know that they had heard of this story um, and, and that this was, this was something that people knew about and were interested in and were excited about. Um, um, and then, you know, two, that no one else had actually written a historical book about it. Um, and so this was a really unique opportunity. And so um, I got a grant from my, my university. Um, I'm on faculty at the University of Oklahoma to come out to Uniontown um, and come do research here. Um, and was able to meet with people from the local historical society and talk to them um, about their knowledge of the trial um, and see some historical artifacts that they had and then also do research in the Pennsylvania room at the Uniontown Public Library, which had some interesting historical sources and contemporary newspaper accounts. Um, And so, you know, I started with the trial transcripts, and as I dug deeper, you find newspaper accounts, sermons, letters, uh, and I started weaving together a story um, that was even more surprising in its plot twists, even more gripping in its details than I had first imagined. Um, You know, it was a story that I think um, you know, would put to shame the most creative novelist or, you know, Hollywood's, Hollywood's most fantastical directors. I certainly don't have uh, imagination enough to have come up with something this rich. When I, when I read it and, and Joe and I were talking about this, I read the first three or four pages and I was sucked in already. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't imagine something happening at this time, especially with the young ladies in that time period. And this whole scandal wrapped around her behavior. Right. Now, again, we don't know how true that was, but just someone making those allegations against her was enough to go, wait a minute, this was enough to cause this man and this father to get into a scuffle that ended up into the, in the father's murder. 
Right. And it, again, it was just something that was what you were drawn into. And like you said, I don't think anybody could have made this up. Right. Right. I mean, there are details of this story um, that struck me as as just beyond extraordinary. You know, uh, one of my favorite parts of the story is the fact that uh, when Nicholas Dukes was a boy, he suffered from what they called uh, white swelling, or what we call tuberculosis, tuberculosis today. And um, a bigger boy in his class, James Hoover, would carry Dukes on his back to school every day. And the two of them forged this friendship that endures into adulthood. And now a generation later, Nicholas Dukes is on trial for the murder of Captain Nutt. And if he's found guilty of murder in the first degree, he's going to be sentenced to die. And it will fall to Sheriff Hoover to hang his childhood companion from the gallows. It's an irony so perverse that if I wrote it in a novel, you'd say, Andrew, that's contrived. Right. Well, it goes back to that whenever after the murder happened, he goes and turns himself in right. to him. And he ends up staying at his home instead of being in a, cell, in a jail cell. I'm going, this is like Andy Griffith and Mayberry. For, right, for a right, right. So the historical society is now part of this book. When he approached you, how did you guys um, react to it? We were excited. We knew the story. We knew the story well. And one of our former members, McGallis, we knew had started a collection of, of some of the booklets that Andrew referenced. And he also had found one of uh, the artists who did some portraits of the James Nut trial, which we haven't really referenced yet. But, but he had also had acquired that and so many other artifacts, original newspapers of the time. And so this was always on our mind at some point we were going to try to do uh, an exhibit on, on the murder. And we just didn't know how we were going to start that, but when Andrew came along, then it was just a, um, an automatic, this is how we do it now. And so we were real excited about that. And, so. and, and again, reading this, and something else intrigued about this is that the insanity plea yeah. is used basically for the first time in a court case saying that he was beyond himself and that's what made him do it. And again, just very interesting how that is in the play and that's something now today that's pretty much used on a regular basis. Yeah, this is this is one of the first um, really uh, uh, widely known instances of the use of the temporary insanity plea. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me about this case and about, you know, in, in this case, uh, after Nicholas Dukes is acquitted, James Nutt, Captain Nutt's eldest son, avenges his father's death, um, killing Dukes in the very post office where Dukes had mailed his infamous letter accusing Lizzie of impropriety with all these other men. And, and James does it with the very gun that his father had clutched in his death throes. Um, and so when James goes on trial, um, his attorneys, um, including the, this legendary Senator Daniel Voorhees, argue that you know, they champion him as this defender of the code of honor, but they also also claim that he was temporarily insane. Um, and I think what's interesting to me about these two defenses is this defense of the honor code is very traditional, but this invocation of the insanity plea and reliance on modern medical experts relying on the latest academic research on temporary insanity is this quintessentially modern defense. And so to argue that someone is both a defender of honor and suffers from a diseased mind isn't really consistent, and yet that inconsistency, I think, betokens a broader tension in American society. Um, that, that really, it really nicely captures that that this is a world torn between the past and the future, between a past committed to the rule of honor and a future committed to science and the rule of law. And again, it, it's just interesting how you were able to tie it in together because in reality, the book actually has two trials in it. The one where Duke is um, kills Captain Nutt and then Captain Nutt's son killing Duke. So you yeah. had two trials um, and, and, and being able to tie those together. And Lizzie, where was she in all this, especially when her brother was accused of killing Duke in honor of her father and basically of her. Right, right. So, you know, Lizzie, Lizzie's a really interesting figure, and I wish there was more about her um, in the primary sources. Um, but but the, the sources I did find, some of the interviews I did find with her were really fascinating. So, um, you know, Lizzie, uh, when her brother is... Um, arrested for the murder of Dukes, um, she's interviewed by the press and she says, well, I wish that my brother hadn't done it so that I could have killed Dukes myself. Um, and this is a really, this is a really interesting statement because on the one hand, um, she is 
totally subscribing to this traditional code of honor that that this man who violates the code of honor should does, does deserve to die. Right. Um, but on the other hand, she's not being a passive female spectator. She's saying, I wish that I had appropriated that responsibility of this vengeance killing myself, um, which in a sense is a very almost sort of modern feminist take yes. um, that in a world where men are supposed to be duking it out over the, the honor of their women, she's saying, no, I wanted to, to take on that myself. Um, and so I think in her own way, Lizzie uh, really poignantly embodies this tension between the traditional and the modern. That's sort of the backdrop to this whole story. Now, um, I'm looking behind you, and there are references to Lizzie and James and the newspaper articles. And that This information that was already there, how much of that work is worked into your book? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, pretty much all of it. Is it? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, these these sorts of pamphlets um, that had, you know, a lot of the trial transcript, but also had some of the letters that were submitted into evidence and, and some commentary on eyewitness descriptions of the aftermath of the trials. There were lynch mobs that formed after Dukes was acquitted, threatening his life. Um, all of that stuff provided great fodder um, for the book. And as a historian, um, to be able to work with primary sources as rich as these um, is, is really your greatest pleasure. Uh, I, I think one of the things that surprised me about some of these sources was just how vivid their descriptions of the scene were. Um, and so, you know, one example that comes to mind, um, Captain Nuts widow was sitting in court and she's covered by a black mourning veil which was standard to wear in public um, for a significant length of time after after the death of your husband and so you can't see her face but there's a moment when the light pours through the window of the courthouse and uh, observers know that she's crying because they can see the reflection of off the of the sun off of her tear-soaked cheek through her veil and that kind of really vivid visual description that you see in these primary sources um, allowed me um, to tell this story in a way that I hope the reader finds is really a sensory experience where they are immersed in the sights and the sounds and, and the smells of these historical moments. And with Captain Nutt's wife, Lizzie's mother, and, and not to say that anybody would, but she never really got over the passing of her husband. She wasn't able to be there for his funeral. Um, she turned all over the finances over to her, her brother and uh, nephew and everything else. And then we find out that Nutt was actually embezzling money yes. from Harrisburg. Yes. So it's like yes. you got this whole other story happening. Right. So you probably could have written another book right. on just what was going on there. And I'm like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is really good. Yeah, I mean, she she was a woman who, who had to bear uh, almost unspeakable sorrows. Uh, you know, she loses her husband, finds out that he has been embezzling money out of the state treasury and is actually drowning in debt. Um, and, uh, you know, her son ends up getting acquitted for this murder. Um, but uh, it turns out that he actually does appear to be insane and attempts to take the life of two other people after walking free, two right. innocent people. Um, and so James ends up, and he tries to do another insanity plea, um, only this time he's no longer a sympathetic defendant defending the honor code. He just shot at people who were innocent, um, and, he, and he ends up going to, to prison. Um, and so she sees her son go to prison, and she loses um, two of her daughters die um, when they're in their youth, um, you know, probably from... Uh, you know, drinking water from a well um, that that was contaminated, um, and that happens actually not even a year after James Nutt's acquittal in 1884. And so she is someone who is surrounded by the death of loved ones, who is surrounded um, by tragedy, uh, and it's um, you know it's. You, you sense uh, a woman in this book to the extent that she appears in the primary sources as someone who is doing the best she can um, to bear these burdens um, while also caring for still some of her children are still quite young at this time. Now, Chris, you mentioned before we sat down and talked that you actually were able to get a hold of some of the family members that are associated with people that were in this book. 
Well, there's the, the names that you're going to see referenced in the book are still here yeah. in Uniontown. And so we're doing our best to try to track down some of these to see what they may remember, recall from their family histories. And uh, and so we're trying to make it current. From the information that you've gotten so far from people who talk to, do they know the story? Has it been passed down? Some have, okay. yes. It has. But I think it was such a tragedy, too, and as referen- in reference to your book, a stain, a stain oh, yeah. on, on Uniontown. Yeah. And it's it was a very long scandalous. time. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. it, it really was. I know when Joe was researching it at the library, too, uh, a reference about the New York Times and the embezzlement charge. Right. And, and what did you see about Dukes then that perhaps... This is why Dukes. Oh, there was some speculation, yeah. and and uh, that possibly Dukes understood that uh, Nut was financially underwater, and and he, you know, was tr- trying to avoid ha- taking on the burden of a family. Had he married Lizzie, he he very well might have been responsible for their debts, and so there's a possibility that he may have have decided that he no longer wanted to be engaged to her because he wanted to escape that that burden. And uh, there's names of individuals that supposedly had relationship with Lizzie that were prominent names in Uniontown at that time and still... And family members are still there. And they all denied it, of course. (laughs) Right. All of them denied it. I see why. Right, right. But again, it, it's really interesting how how this book looks at local history, deals with a factual situation. I mean, you, in a lot of ways, it was handed to you once you did the research. Right. All you had to do was compile the information and put your spin on it and with what you know about the situation today. And it's just amazing to read. Sure. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, this, yeah, the story, uh, I think, is, is so... Um, compelling that you'd have to be a bad storyteller to make it not interesting. Uh, you know, uh, and I think that that for me as a historian, my goal was to look at this story and ask the question: Well, what does this tell us about its historical moment? That this was a story that struck a chord not just in Uniontown, not just in Fayette County or in Western Pennsylvania, but around the country and indeed around the world. Um, and so my question was: Can I tell this story and do it in a way that opens up and gives us a window into what it meant to live in this society amid the tumult of rapid change. And the other thing that's interesting too, which you were saying that reminded me that when when Captain Nutt was in the Civil War, what regiment he was in charge of, Mm -hmm. which we wouldn't have thought of at that time, but they were all African American. He was in charge of that unit. And that at that time well, I'm not saying it was unheard of, but it wasn't very common. Right, right. And th- this was, um, you know, this was a really interesting facet of Captain Nutt's history. Um, and, it, you know, it's telling that even 20 years after the Civil War, he still goes by Captain Nutt. Right. Um, that this was something he took great pride in, that he was he was the, the officer who led um, an all-African-American regiment in the war that fought in some of the bloodiest fighting of the war, actually, um, in South Carolina. And... Um, and what was really interesting to me was the tie-in with this story later, because after Dukes is acquitted, um, these lynch mobs um, sing a song about hanging Nicholas Dukes, and they do it to the tune of the song John Brown's Body. Oh, okay. And John Brown was a militant abolitionist um, who, in 1859, with a ragtag militia of 20 men, seizes Harper's Ferry, a federal arsenal there, in the hopes of inciting, of inciting a massive slave insurrection. Right. Um, and and his idea was that they would spread across the South and crush the institution of slavery. They ended up being besieged um, by by the U.S. military and never actually made it out of of Harper's Ferry and it only lasted for 36 hours. Um, but he became a martyr for the cause of abolition. And Union troops during the Civil War would um, would sing um, you know songs to the tune of John Brown's body. And and so it's really telling. Um, that nut supporters chose in this moment after Dukes' acquittal to sing a song about lynching Dukes to the tune of John Brown's body because Captain Nutt lived out the dream that um, 
that John Brown was unable to. John Brown was found guilty of, of treason and hanged, and um, and he never lived out his dream of leading free African Americans into the heart of the South to liberate those still in bondage. A few years later, as a young captain, Captain Nutt would be able to bring John Brown's dream to fruition. And so this moment after the lynching in Uniontown where they're singing songs to the tune of John Brown's body is a moment uh, just pregnant with historical symbolism. And the Uniontown at the time was also part of the Underground Railroad mm-hmm. and coming through the area. So there is a tie to that, which is very a very interesting um, connection to pretty much because a lot of what you've done is you've taken this history over a period of time and put a nice little bow on it and given a really nice package that someone can read this and start putting the pieces together and going, this is how Uniontown, how Fayette County, how Western Pennsylvania fit into the whole Civil War because we're so used to the revolution and everything else, right. but yet we still have a connection to what was going on um, during the, uh, the the Civil War and everything. So, certainly, certainly. So again, it's really nice to be able to do that. Now, I see a flyer sitting in front of me dealing with May 22nd, and knowing my dates and the way things work around here, that is the weekend of the National Pike That's uh, Road Festival that is coming on. So can you tell us what's going to be happening on the 22nd? Well, we're going to have our, the museum will be open all weekend, uh, and we're having Andrew as our one of our featured programs. He's going to be here uh, Saturday on the 22nd. Sunday, Sunday, May 22nd. Sunday, Sunday, May 22nd. And uh, he will meet with people and chat about his book. He'll present a program. Um, so we're inviting everybody to come by and meet him, uh, enjoy the book. We also are having some Civil War reenactors. We're trying to reach out to the greater story that is based in, in Andrew's book. And so we're going to have, as I said, some Civil War reenactors. We're going to have some uh, artisans displaying uh, craft. Hopefully we're going to have some food of the era and um, just celebrate the National Road heritage and, of course, uh, Andrew's book. Um, now, when you're going to be speaking to the public, what are you going to be talking about? Like what we've just talked about now, are you going to delve into a certain uh, um, topic within the book? Sure, sure. Well, uh, you know, I hope to be able to give people uh, an overview of, of this story um, and and, and uh, give them a sense of um, not just these, these sort of very dramatic details of it and the characters of it, but give them a sense of what Uniontown was like in that moment. Um, and, and, and also what I see as the broader significance of this story as, as a window into understanding um, the, the country and the Gilded Age. Um, and then, you know, I also hope to leave plenty of time for questions and answers and get a sense from people here in Fayette County and Uniontown, you know, what aspects of the book speak to them and what they're interested in hearing more about. Now, where can they get the book at? So the book, um, The Devil Himself, is it's, it's uh, available on Amazon. Um, so you can look it up on Amazon. It's published by Oxford University Press and also available on the publisher's website. Um, and I'll also have some copies here when I come uh, on May 22nd. Now, um, The Devil Himself, why the title? Yeah, so this was this was a title where when I first saw the phrase, it jumped out at me and I said, this is going to be the title of the book. It appears in the letter that Dukes wrote to Captain Nutt um, admitting to the seduction of Lizzie. And he says that such were Lizzie's charms, she could, quote, disarm the devil himself. Um, and, you know, I, I thought that this was such a telling phrase because the implicit question I see at the heart of the book is, you know, who is the real devil here? You have Captain Nutt as the Civil War hero, and he's this defender of honor, but he's also embezzling funds. Yes. And, um, you know, Nicholas Dukes is this person who's, who's written this really treacherous letter to a father, but he is also, you know, a son who's, who's, uh, who's murdered in cold blood. And we see these scenes of his mother weeping over his body. Um, and... And, you know, James Nutt is this, this son who defends his father's honor, who avenges his father's death, who defends the honor of his sister, and yet he also um, inflicts harm on innocent people after right. walking free. And so I think each of these characters has um, some aspect of the devil in them, but all of them are capable of, of good uh, and evil. Um, and I think that 
you know, part of my job as a historian um, is not to present history in this in this way that you know there's heroes and villains, but actually uh, appreciate that people are complex and and try to um, bring them back to life in their full complexity. Now, one question I have for you: um, Do you think when not approached do? They knew there was going to be a scuffle happening. If in the back of Nut's head, this was his way of getting out of the hole, embezzling and everything else, because he knew his life was probably going to end anytime soon, and this was his way of doing it, quote unquote, with honor. Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting question. Um, I think that you know a telling detail that I think would support your theory is that the last thing that Captain Nut does before he confronts Nicholas Dukes in Dukes's hotel room is he goes to his nephew Clark Breckenridge, um, who works at the local bank, and it's a, it's a Saturday, and he um, yeah, I, or, I'm sorry, it's a Sunday actually. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a Sunday, and so the bank is closed, and he has his nephew open the bank for him so that he can deposit um, over six hundred dollars, which today I think would be probably around fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars, to the name of his wife, and and it strikes me that he felt it necessary to do that before he saw Dukes. That I think this was someone who thought he may very well die and probably wanted his wife to have ready access to funds while his estate was being sorted. And so I think that there is a certain fatalism in that decision. Um, and one could imagine that if he, if Nutt felt, you know, as he's, he's speculating on oil with stolen funds from the treasury, uh, hoping to make a profit and then replenish the funds ostensibly, and yet oil keeps tanking, and does he feel the walls closing in around him? Is this a way out? It's 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 an interesting theory, and I think there's probably something to that. Because I, I thought that was interesting, too. And then the other thing is that the Duke's trial, Duke basically admitted to Hoover that he did it. That he... That he turned himself in, right? Because you had eyewitnesses. Well, supposedly eyewitnesses right. were on the other side of the door, and they were hearing right. the argument back and forth. That if it wouldn't have gone to trial, and if they would have taken Duke's word for it that it happened, or if Duke wouldn't have changed yeah. his pleas, there would have never been the rest of the story. Right. Right. And again, it's just interesting how just with the way the criminal justice system worked back then, that in a lot of ways kept perpetuating. What was going on? Because was there something going on with Dukes and Hoover that Hoover was trying to prove that he was innocent, that it was unrequited love or whatever it was? Right. Again, you can go into the whole conspiracy. Yeah. Point of view. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, the the first thing that happens after. Um, captain that dies is is a coroner's inquest is convened, which is sort of akin to a grand jury, um, and they hear and the, and these jurors hear from well alleged eyewitnesses. Right. There, Duke says that he killed Captain Nutt in self defense, and there were no witnesses. Um, there were three other people who claimed that they actually saw Dukes unnecessarily kill Captain Nutt, um, and so who's telling the truth? We don't know, but these witnesses were persuasive enough for. Um, the coroner's inquest that uh, they indicted him um, was not persuasive enough for 12 of Dukes' peers to actually um, convict him. Um, now, taking this trial, do you, can you compare, to the, to compare this trial to any trial in recent history in today's standards? What would you compare this to? Because there's been quite a few in the last 10, 20 years. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, I think there are you know, there, there are probably a number of cases. Um, I think uh, the O.J. Simpson trial is one that comes to mind where you have a case that, um, that involves this sort of uh, love forsaken mm-hmm. and then also leads to violence and the details around it are very mysterious and it captivates the national imagination. Um, and I think it, it speaks to broader issues in, in the society at that time. Um, but I think in general, you know, one of the things that you look at today with, you know, Serial being the most popular podcast in history, yes, yes. you know, recounting um, this this story about someone who, who was convicted despite what appears to be a lot of reasonable doubt or um, the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer where you have a couple people convicted despite what appears to be mountains of reasonable doubt. And I think that we're in a historical moment where there's a real public um, lack of faith 
in the integrity of the criminal justice system. And I think we see that at play in this trial, too. And I think there appears to be uh, something perennial at play. I mean, you could go back to the Salem witch trials, and I think Americans have often harbored doubts about the integrity of the criminal justice system. Um, But I think that because jury trials are human institutions, they necessarily reflect back to us our own failures of human nature. And I see a lot of the the mistakes made um, in that I recount in this book, some of the tragedies in this book, on the one hand, you like to think they're avoidable, but on the other hand, um, this is a story populated by people, and people, um, people are flawed, and they make mistakes, uh, and sometimes those mistakes are deadly. Again, it's, it's a great read. It's very entertaining. Thank you. And I can see, I mean, me coming also from a TV background, I can see actually making that into a movie. Absolutely. That someone could pick it up and do that of the historic time period. Because, again, like you said, no one can make this stuff up. Right, right, right. <laughs> just, you had so many different storylines that everything just came together. Yeah. And you had people that were dealing with so much conflict internally Yeah. that it all came to fruition at the end. Um, now, with what you guys were involved with and with what he's done in the book, are you pleased with what you've read? Oh, absolutely. Has he done an accurate portrayal of what you know? He's told us some things we didn't know, which okay. we were really happy about. The visual image of Hoover carrying Nicholas on his back to go to school was just one of those that will stay with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, you describing Lizzie as a modern woman, too. Mm-hmm. You know, she was a talented woman. She was educated in Baltimore. I think she was the love of her daddy's life. Sure. And uh, I think she was very intelligent. And um, She's a talented musician. Talented musician. And, you know, Lizzie did... After after her dad died, she uh, tried to become the postmaster in Uniontown. Oh, really? Appealed to the president himself, and the president did consider appointing her, but she lost out to Sturgis, who became the postmaster at the time. But but she did, and, and they said that you know she equaled any other person who could have wanted that job. But I don't know why the president didn't give it to her. She had support, local support from uh, the political people. But uh, but Lizzie finally married. I, you know, and I think there is a happy ending to, to her story. She didn't marry until she was about 30 years of age. She married a, a man from Green County, Kreps, and they moved away to Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And she had three sons, and that's where she's buried out there. So I have to think, I want to think that, that Lizzie did end up in a happier situation. So, and I think what struck me the most about the book was uh, the difference in the sensibilities of the times that we share now and then the times uh, in, in the 1800s. I mean, when I read the details of the trial and some of the, which we certainly, it would never happen this way today, for example, the, the selection of the uh, medical panel of experts, yes. the expert witnesses. Right. That would never stand today. And I think uh, that, uh, that that's what struck me the most is the, the contrast between today and also the quality of the reporting in the newspapers. I mean, bias. <laughs> bias is a mild uh, description of what the various newspapers and individual newspapers, uh, of course, had one side or the other. Um, and I was, I was also taken very much with the, uh, the popularity of the, the want for um, righteous just, justice. I think it was only the New York Times that advocated for the rule of law. And uh, that was certainly an unpopular position during this this era uh, regarding this case. That's what struck me the most. It's interesting. The indignation meetings that were held around Fayette County, too. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. They had uh, an indignation meetings, or the term they used, after Dukes' acquittal. Um, uh, immediately that night in Uniontown, after the verdict is announced, the crowd um, pours out onto the streets of Uniontown and uh, and begins basically rioting. They're, they lynch um, dummies of Dukes. They set a dummy of Dukes on fire. Um, Dukes manages to escape into the custody of his friend Sheriff Hoover, um, who, if Dukes had been found guilty, would have been tasked with taking Dukes' life. Now he was saving Dukes' life. And Dukes ends up escaping on horse 
horseback under the cover of darkness after midnight when the when the crowds die down that day. But the next day, um, the leading citizens have this indignation meeting in Uniontown where they read aloud telegrams sent to them from other communities calling on them to lynch dukes. And they... Um, and they read aloud a series of resolutions calling for Dukes' blood. And what's really striking to me is how institutionalized and organized these lynch mobs are. And they're led by leading citizens, including clergymen, newspaper editors, you know, um, people bearing military titles, physicians. Um, and so these are the, the, these are the very people who have the social capital, who have the influence in society to help render honor killing obsolete and instead they exalt the code of honor um, and call for bloodshed in its defense and these and the indignation meeting in Uniontown gives rise to indignation meetings all over the county you know mo- none of the jurors were actually from Uniontown they're from right. all over the county and so all of Fayette County feels like its honor is being um, you know, impugned in, in in the eyes of the country. And part of the reason I think they feel the need to do these indignation meetings is to put on a show, knowing that the press is going to write about this nationwide, um, to show, no, we, we, we do value the code of honor, and we're, you know, we we will call for this man's corpse um, in, in exchange for the wrongs that he has committed and the stain that he's brought upon us. Now, the jury... Whatever happened to them that that basically acquitted Dukes of the murder? Right. Well, they had, um, uh, you know, the jurors go back to their hometowns, and some of them are chased out of their hometowns. Um, one of them um, loses their job. Um, a lot of them live in fear for their life. I mean, some of these lynch mobs are calling not just for Dukes's death. Um, but there are lynch mobs and indeed newspapers calling for the deaths, uh, the murders of the jurors as well. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll defer to Chris, who's done some follow-up research since I completed the it's, book on that. It is fascinating. I found one juror who was living in Bullskin, and it described how one night he was sitting in front of the fire with his family, and all of a sudden his jaw exploded. And the, the physician was called in and removed 38 pieces of bone from his jaw. And he could not live with the pain. He couldn't live with himself any longer. So he committed suicide. And from what I there he wasn't the only one who committed suicide. Uh, they, I don't know that they just couldn't live with themselves. or, But, but anyway, but it is fascinating, their lives. But they did go back to their hometowns, and, and they were hated. They were loathed. People wanted the worst to happen to them. They were, some of them were attacked. And it's, I mean, some of them did, did, did not take their own lives? Did they stay in the area? Did they move away? I think they all stayed in the area but one. I'm, I'm having a difficult time tracking just one and I, he was a coal miner. So he's the only one I haven't been able to locate. So, But because I pretty much would, have the 11 down. Because that would be a solid reputation for the family itself oh, because yeah. you were associated with acquitting this man who, in some people would say, was pretty much caught dead to rights yeah. in what happened. There was one, uh, Amalong, who was from Belle Vernon, and it was written that he was attacked. But but prior to him even uh, being on the jury, he was telling everybody that, of course, Dukes was innocent. And in today's world, as Joe was saying, especially since Joe's son is an attorney, that person would never have been allowed no. to be on right. the jury. And, um, and, and they wanted to be able to appear in court and say exactly what he had said, but that was never allowed into testimony. So, but preconceived, certainly. What I think is interesting, and and I go back on this before, is how fast information traveled, telegraph and and newspapers. And you said that reporters were coming here Mm -hmm. to stay with the story. Right. Report back whatever you get. They send it to the local newspaper. Looking at the technology today with social media and the internet, right. do you think this case would have gone in a different direction or would have the same thing happened? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think uh, we, you know, I, I, I think um, our interest in murder trials has not abated at all. Um, and so it may have looked different and it may have, it may have taken on a 21st century um, form, but I think that social media may have only... Uh, Increase the speed and the reach of, of a story this scandalous, uh, and so I think that you know we we need look no further than some of the modern examples I talked about with serial and making a murder right. to see that um, these are the kinds of stories that the public still hungers for. 
And again, it's just very interesting to see that we think that 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 period of time in the late 1800s was very calm and serene and it was so innocent and everything else. But then when you read something like that going, they were just like we were. Yeah. Yeah, And in some cases worse, but they were, they were, they still did the same thing. And again, Lizzie with um, a reputation that could have been true, could not have been true. Was someone's hearsay on that? Right. It's just again taking someone's word against it. And if it was, if it wasn't for Duke writing those letters, yeah, and getting her dad all riled up and coming right. at, and then with dad maybe with the the uh, embezzlement situation going on in Harrisburg, wouldn't the whole story happen? Would it have been something that would have just been swept under the rug or everything else? Mm-hmm. But I guess we'll never know because it did happen. And it played out the way it did. So, again, just very interesting. And I'm very glad you wrote it because I've heard stories about the trial. And I've heard bits and pieces of it and was never able to connect anything together. Because, as I mentioned to you earlier, they do um, they talk about the trial and they talk about uh, Duke's um, Duke being shot outside the post office mm-hmm. on a ghost tour that happens in Uniontown, mm-hmm. and I've heard bits and pieces of it. But now I know why it happened and everything else. So again, this is, is very interesting. And before we go today, is there one thing you want to tell the people watching and listening about this book that we haven't discussed yet? Um, yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I would just say. Uh, you know, the main thing is that uh, it's it's been a pleasure to work on a book um, that takes place in a period of of Pennsylvania. I mean, in a in a location in Pennsylvania where people take so much pride in their local history, um, and it's really you know, as someone who's not a Western Pennsylvanian, um, it's great to be able to come back here and get to talk to people um, who care so much about this history. Um, and so I hope that people will go on Amazon and get the book and come out on on May twenty second. Um, and and I think I thank you for uh, for having me today. Well, I really appreciate and thank you to Joe and Chris for bringing it to my attention and um, having the pleasure of being able to. To, uh, read the book and meet you and, and, and do this because again I've learned a lot today and I'm sure that when I read it again I'll learn more <laughs> but it just opened up that whole new window to this time period that a lot of people in this county didn't know existed. We know what we're hearing with Lafayette and the revolution, stuff like that. We know what happened with the coal mines and everything else. But this is a piece of history here that there's a lot that was going on in town at the time that probably you could do three or four books just right. on what was going on in Union Town. Right. So, again, this is a great um, a great eye-opening experience for a lot of us and I hope other people be able to take advantage of buying the book coming out on May 22nd to be able to meet you talk with you and uh, get more information about this time period, this sully time period in Fayette County history but still nonetheless a very interesting time. So again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for joining us this week and uh, we'll be talking to you real soon. You've just gone online Online. with Bill Alexander For more information and to download this program as a podcast, go to onlinewithbillalexander.com. Online with Bill Alexander is a million-dollar baby production in association with TalkShoe.com. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.